This episode is sponsored by our friends at Law CPD who offer premium online CPD courses for lawyers Australia-wide. Not only do they offer great interactive and informative courses, the best part is that they can be done anywhere and anytime. And of course, don't forget that you don't need to be a lawyer to enjoy what Law CPD has to offer. Their courses cover professional development topics more broadly, like learning to assert yourself, dealing with difficult clients, or managing meetings more effectively, which are things that all of us need to know how to do. You can check out their full range of courses at lawcpd.com.au. If you want a satisfying career and a fulfilling family life, this is the podcast for you. Join me, Joel Lilovich, and me, Lucy Dickens, as we share strategies and advice to help you keep your balls in the air. Welcome to the Juggle Podcast. Hi, everyone. It's Joel Lilovich here. And Lucy Dickens. Welcome back to the Juggle Podcast. A few weeks ago, a friend of ours, Anne-Marie Rice, was named the Woman Lawyer of the Year in Queensland. She gave an acceptance speech that has gone viral. It was honest, raw and relatable. And today we have her as our guest. Anne-Marie has her own law firm and mediation practice and she lectures at the University of Queensland. She's focused on doing law differently and is one of the key drivers behind the movement for collaborative practice in the legal profession. She is also a mother of two. We were so lucky to have the chance to speak to Anne-Marie about her speech, her own motherhood career journey, and in her words, the sacrifices that are required to make it all work together. She's kindly agreed to let us share an extract of her acceptance speech with everyone, and we're going to link to the full speech in the show notes because we're sure that you will want to hear the rest of it too. So here it is. Ladies and gentlemen, I have a confession to make. I am tired. I am tired because I'm 44 years old, self-employed and a mother of two primary school age children and it goes with the territory. I am tired because I'm also a wife, a sister, a daughter, a friend, a colleague, a mentor, a teacher and an active participant in my personal and professional communities and I take those opportunities and responsibilities seriously and I give them my all. I'm tired because I'm a lawyer, and the law is a jealous mistress. But most of all, I am tired from 20 years of doing a job through a prison that is fundamentally inconsistent with who I am. It's a lens that is fundamentally one-dimensional and inherently aggressive. It's fundamentally masculine. The way law is practiced largely invites lawyers to first solve problems by making them bigger and then by aggressively holding a position until a decision is either imposed on them or compromised based on brinkmanship. I don't naturally think like that, but I was taught that that's how my job is done and I've learned how to excel at it. But I'm tired. I am exhausted from walking that walk. It affects who I am. It dims my light. And looking around this room tonight, I know that I'm not the only one who feels it. But it also affects those who are not in this room. The women who have left the profession, not because they have retired after full and fulfilling careers, but because they have opted out early. Thanks so much for joining us, Anne-Marie. Thank you for having me, ladies. 
We just played a clip from your acceptance speech when you won the Lenine Ford Woman Lawyer of the Year Award at the Women Lawyers Association of Queensland recent gala dinner. And we know from having talked to a lot of people and having seen all of the social media interest that it has struck a chord with a lot of people. We were also really lucky to just see you very, very recently at the club retreat. And you mentioned that you only wrote that speech 15 minutes before you left for the evening. So what I was wondering when you said that was what had happened or what led to you writing that speech? I think although the speech didn't take long at all to write, I have been thinking about those things and agonising over those things for the best part of a decade. And when Erin Shaw from my office nominated me for that award, she jokingly said it would be really good if someone gave an honest assessment of what it takes to be a woman lawyer because I feel tired. And I thought, yeah, I think that is what needs to be said. And I think opening myself up to that idea then let all of those things about why I am so exhausted come out in a way that could then be articulated. I think I'd been talking about them to close friends for a long time, but putting them all together, that was a really uh, remarkable opportunity to be able to do that. It was an audience where it was likely to be, I thought it was likely to be well received. But interestingly, during the course of that night, so the, before the dinner, I was aware that I was a finalist and they recommend that you prepare a thank you speech. And I wrote it really as a way of guaranteeing that I wouldn't win so that I didn't get up there and start to babble aimlessly. <laughs> but during the course of the night, watching all of these unbelievably impressive women give speeches, MC the evening, accept awards, I had that absolutely typical moment that we've all had of sitting there thinking, Anne-Marie, you can't deliver this speech. This is far too Anne-Marie-centric. It's far too family law-centric. You have missed the mark. You can't keep up. This is all wrong. You're going to have to think of something else. Mm -hmm. And right at that moment after that third committee meeting in my own head, they announced (laughs) that I was the winner and I thought, I haven't got anything else, so this is going to help (laughs) Why did you have second thoughts? Was it because you frame, you start the segment that we just play by saying, I have a confession to make. So it's like, it's a dirty secret. Yes. You're not supposed to talk about. And is that uh, why you're having second thoughts? Yes, because that night was all about unbelievably impressive women doing unbelievably impressive things. Yeah. And we do that and it's terrific, but we all still have this um, inhibition about revealing the toll that it takes to achieve all of those things and then even during the speech it was such a strange experience because the room was completely quiet and again like a good second guessing woman I thought to myself holy smokes this is not going very well you've completely missed the mark no one's with you and the applause was really quite muted and it was lovely but after I got off the stage people took to their feet Mm. and it was really at that moment that the emotional outpouring began and I realised what I'd hit on. It was just sinking in. Mm. Yeah, people needed time to reflect for a few minutes and really go, yeah, wow, that's me too. And then the crying began. In many respects, it's continued. It's still going, yeah. Mm. And you talk about this very idea about pretending that it's easy and you say we need to stop pretending that it's really easy realistic or sustainable and that ties into this pretending that we're not tired and that it is easy and that we can just 
keep going and get on with it. And having had the, you've had lots of conversations with people and you've obviously reflected on the speech after having given it. What are your thoughts around that in a more detailed way? I think women are, we're a perfect storm in the sense that it's well known women suffer from imposter syndrome much more than men. So we take a lot of convincing of ourselves that we have earned the stripes and we can do the work and we have that fundamental skill set. And then I think what I've really been reflecting on as people's feedback has come through to me is that that psychological burden that women carry, that we are innately predisposed to that our genetic makeup signs us up for as mums in particular but you don't just have to be a mum to experience this means that we're constantly thinking about so many things all the time and it's exhausting we are on on every possible level all the time and I think all working mums will have had that experience where that I've had where there have been nights when I've been up with my kids and I think to myself holy smokes I have had 45 minutes sleep And now I have to turn up and show up and take responsibility for other people's lives, regardless of what it took to get me to my desk today. And you can do that, particularly if you love your job. In some ways, I've thought that's the curse for me. I love what I do. I'm completely dedicated to what I do. I can't do it any other way than 110%. But I've never stopped until my body started to give in to ask, what is the cost of that? I've also thought a lot about the stress and the weight of responsibility for me. And I think some people can carry responsibility differently. But for me, being a principal in a firm, having other people's work and their mortgages dependent on me, the kind of work that we do, the particularly in family law, the significance of what's happening in people's lives, being a parent, wanting to be a decent lovable um, and I mean that in a genuine way when you think about what happens to people who work in high stress situations for a long time Mm -hmm. but um, a lovable wife and mother and sister that for me all of that just became so weighty that I had to surrender to myself that it's unsustainable either I sign on to be miserable or I have to find a way of letting some of that out This reminds me of all of those articles around we can't have it all. And then someone else will say you can't have it all but you can have... You can't have it all at once but you can have it all. You know, there's so many different ways of looking at it but some of what you've talked about in your speech goes towards this idea, you know, like being tired, trying to do all the things. So what do we do? So I think for me it's a bit different to that idea of having it all because I, I really resent the idea that I can't have the professional life that I'm capable of having and be the kind of mother that I want to be. I have a very strong belief that the investment you make in your small children will determine what kind of teenagers you have. Yes. And Mm -hmm. I want a relationship with my teenagers that's meaningful and mutually respectful and is bringing out the best in them and the best in me. Yes. But the idea that I can't do that and maximise all that I've got to give in a professional sense in the way that most men can, Mm -hmm. although I accept that they don't have the flip side necessarily of that parenting connection, I think is really unfair. And I think a lot of the way that, I'm not saying it's created by anyone, I just think it feels unfair. And a way that a lot of times women are taught to manage that or encouraged to manage that is to say, well, just lower your expectations about various things. And I can't lower my expectations 
about how I'd like to live my life, the kind of person I'd like to be, how much I'd like to give, how well I want to do my practice, how interested I am in a million things around me. And so that's why I overcommit and I get tired and I get trapped in this loop. Mm. And the thing I've worked out that is actually eating me alive, the part that really is unsustainable, is the aggression. Mm. That if I could live my life from a centre of kindness, and I don't see why you can't do that as a lawyer, I would have, I think, a more authentic application of my resources and maybe it would be easier. So that takes us to another part of the speech. Lucy and I were talking about this as we were reflecting on the speech together about how often it's the workplace and the way the workplace is designed that impacts on your enjoyment and your ability to feel that you can be your full self. Yeah. So we've heard a number of times that workplace structures are designed for men. I don't even know that they're designed for anyone. I think they've evolved from a time when life was so different the pace of life was different. The home support network provided by the woman who was at home was so different. And the woman's revolution, the, the liberation in the 70s happened in some respects so quickly that work culture just no one thought about whether or not that could work. And I think this is what I was trying to say when I used to think about the fact that the gateways for women's participation in the law was wide open and it didn't matter I didn't need to be here in the way that I might have felt I needed to be here for the sisterhood in the 70s when it really did matter to get mm. women in. Yes. But those women had no choice other than to do it the man's way. And I think what's different now is that we could question what's a way for all people to work in a much more holistic, productive and is that what you mean when you say that the workplaces or that through your legal career you've had to operate through a lens which is not ours? And by ours, I'm, I'm assuming that you're meaning a women's lens. Yes. I've operated through a lens that meant I had to be there as a director of the firm at 8 o'clock mm. before the staff behaving like a duck, like, <laughs> like you're swimming smoothly along and underneath where no one can see you are scrambling. Because that's what I thought leaders did. That's what the expectation was. I was taught you fight fire with fire. If you've got an aggressive opponent, you behave in an aggressive manner. How do you see that changing throughout your career and into the future? I think it's changed enormously in the 20 years that I've been in practice. In some ways, it's changed because I've changed and I encourage everyone around me to stop and think, do I have to fight back with that? What is the point of what I'm doing? I think it's changed because women are here en masse and I'm only just hitting that stage of my career where women would ordinarily throw in the towel, raise the white flag. I think it's that, that 15, 20 years in where you think either I have to do something completely differently or I have to get out. Mm -hmm. And I think technology is saving us, the capacity to work remotely, the idea that you can acknowledge to your clients in a way that I didn't a decade ago. I have children. I have to leave at a certain time. I'm not here on Wednesday afternoons. All of those things that I pretended that the lens that I was operating through weren't real. I think these issues are broader than the legal profession. Of course they are. But do you think there are aspects of it that are unique to lawyers? I think that's hard to answer from the inside. I Certainly the feedback I've had is that this is not just an issue for the legal profession. It's very real um, in, in most 
personal services industries and also in medicine. I think that the law, because it has evolved in such a glacial way, because it's still very much court-centric, even though the vast majority of lawyers keep matters out of court, it's inherently adversarial. The, the, the lens is inherently aggressive and something that men are just much more naturally comfortable with. They don't, I don't think they feel it. In the, and certainly the men I've worked with don't feel it in the way that I feel it, much more adept at navigating it. And I've often felt envious of that. I've often thought it would be great to not feel the weight quite so much. I think we would all like to not feel the weight quite so much. (laughs) It's partly the nature of the beast though, isn't it? If you're going to do a job where you are dealing with very serious things in people's lives, you have to be prepared to take that seriously. Mm. But I think the other thing I've learned very slowly is that it's not my problem to solve. My job is to guide and advise and to provide information rather than necessarily to fix things. And that's quite a liberating mindset to get to. We have to start with our own life and our own world and the people around us. I don't think we can change everything, but we have to start small. And the more people we can influence, the more people they can influence. And then that's how the wave happens and the movement grows. Yes. And It feels incremental, it feels tiny, but it's very meaningful. And I look now particularly at um, the feedback I get from people who were clients of mine 10 years ago who pop up now in all sorts of strange little social media or unexpected social media contexts and say, thank you, the way you approached what you did for me had a profound effect on me and how I viewed my life. And I've also started to reflect a bit more on the feedback I get from clients. And and I I built a new website recently and I gathered up some of those cards and things that people had given me. And because I think that's another thing I do particularly badly, but most women do, is you don't stop and savour the positive mostly because we're so busy that you need to move on (laughs) to the next thing. But the kinds of things that people had said to me about how I conducted myself during their matter and the things I invited them to focus on during their matter really became, again, when I think about the sort of gestation period of that speech, the reminder that I'd always been trying to do something a little bit different. I'd always known that the view I was being asked to adopt was not mine. You finish your speech with a very famous quote and you've developed a very cool hashtag about Ginger Rogers. Tell us that. So the quote is a very well-known one um, and I can remember discovering that I think I was probably at high school and feeling incredibly empowered by how difficult it must have been for Ginger Rogers to do everything Fred Astaire did but backwards and in high heels. And I remember feeling really quite fierce in a way about that, that yes, I could do these things. And what really came to me in the course of thinking about what that meant was that if Ginger Rogers could also turn around, if she could face forward, imagine the perspective she would bring to that dance. It's not about replacing the Fred Astaire role or asking him to turn around and go backwards. It's just about looking out and allowing us to maximise all our inherent natural strengths. Oh, that's so true. From that, I take that we need both male and female leaders, that, you know, we have different skills and attributes and personalities to bring, and that until we can truly bring both of those leaders to the forefront, we're not going to be, as a society, as a whole world, the best that we can be. I think that's 
Absolutely right. And it's why I say um, in the speech that legal life, professional life, sport, family lives are viewed through a lens that isn't a woman's lens and it isn't even an equal lens, which would be better. It's just it takes to make the man's world work. And I don't mean a man as in men, I mean as in business and all of those industries that have evolved and are still very much focused on the way that men comfortably naturally operate because they have the luxury of having both eyes on that mostly, whereas the women have one eye on that and one eye on 16 other things going on. (laughs) Speaking of having one eye on 16 other things going simultaneously, I think you might be juggling your family at the moment with a few sounds in the background there. So how do you normally do your juggle between a very high-powered career and managing a family? I think this is one of the things that requires great honesty because the easy answer is to say it's busy, I'm always tired, it's really hard, I've got a supportive husband and all the things, the platitudes that you normally hear. Um, But I think the reality is that for me it comes at significant financial cost. Mm -hmm. Um, I have not worked full-time since I have had children, Mm -hmm. so that's 10 years, but I have worked seven days a week. Mm-hmm. I have worked every night probably yeah. in those 10 years. I have worked at least at some stage every weekend. I am very bad at having holidays. My kids have been to a few places in the world that they're very lucky to have seen, but only because I've been going to a conference mm-hmm. and we can take them with us. That's not a relaxed, easy holiday. It's certainly not fun for my husband who has to entertain them while I'm at the conference in a foreign city. And we've often said, how good would it be to go on a holiday where you don't have to worry about where the nearest playground is and what the kids are going to eat and you could just go and enjoy the city for what the city had to offer. I have a a nanny and I'm in the luxurious position of being able to afford her and she has been with us since my daughter who's now eight was three months old I could not function without her she told me recently that she was looking for another job and after I recovered from the near nervous breakdown (laughs) I realized it was going to take me five people to replace her wow wow when she went away on holiday for a month it took seven adults to get I've only got two children, but they go to different schools to get everyone where they needed to be. My husband travels and like a true man, he travels ad hoc. There's no notice. There's no planning. He just comes home and says, in two days, I'm going to Wollongong. Right. It's just nuts all the time. (laughs) I think this is what we were just saying. Nothing's ever easy. I never relax. I think I'm lucky that I love my job. It sustains me on some fundamentally profound level. If it didn't, I wouldn't do it because it isn't the juggle, the plate spinning just isn't worth it. The first thing you said in response to that question that Joe just asked you was that it takes honesty and that's that's how you need to approach this. And we also mentioned just before that the three of us were all at a conference earlier or last week and that was a conference that was very important to all of us but especially to you because it was run by one of your close friends and you were presenting there and you missed the first day because you had a sick child. Was that an easy choice for you to decide that there's this important 
thing happening in my career and I've got a sick child and it was away from home I should also note so it was one that we all traveled to and husbands and children came along to hang out playground how did you make that choice and are those kinds of choices things that you're having to do on a regular basis oh they are they are done on a daily basis (laughs) and they are agonizing because I love what I do I love the professional opportunities that I have I love my children in the way that all parents will understand. It's deep and profound and all-encompassing. But I do not love the sacrifice that parenting requires of me. But it isn't a choice. If I want the children and adults that I want to leave my care one day, because my job as a parent is to make myself redundant, then I have to invest in them now. And the person who has to make those sacrifices is me. Not going to that particular conference was without doubt the hardest decision that I had to make because partly who it was for and how it's come together and the people who would be there who have sustained me in so many different ways. But it's no choice. If you get to use your mummy powers and you surrender to them, there's nothing like it. But there was a moment when my son, who was really so very ill, and I think I was kidding myself about how ill he was, said, I am so sorry for being sick, Mummy. I know you want to be at that conference. And I thought, well, far out, I'm not carrying a very good poker face. (laughs) (laughs) But that told me two things that were really profound. One was that he needed me yeah. and that on his, in his own way he appreciated that I was there. Mm-hmm. And the other is that he understands that what I do matters to me as a person. And I remember when he was probably about five, so he was just, just starting at school, and he said, oh, why can't you be like all those other mums who are <laughs> always there? Why can't you be like um, Auntie Vic who doesn't work? And I said to him, the answer is because I am a person as well as your mum, and what I do for my job really matters to me. And I give a lot of myself to you and there's, there's some that's left for giving to me. And the way I give to me is to go out and do a meaningful job. Mm-hmm. And he, he's a quite remarkable kid, but he totally understood that. Mm-hmm. I think I exude meaningfulness when I talk about work. I have had conversations with my husband where I think, what on earth am I teaching my kids? What is the lesson they're going to get from me? They're going to learn how to work hard, but are they going to learn anything else? And that's those moments where you say you've got to show them a bit of the silly or the zany. It's so reassuring to hear that and to hear your children are older than mine and Joe's or some of Joe's. And it's so nice because when they're two and three and four, they don't understand enough to be able to have that bigger picture perspective. But it's so nice to hear from people who have children who are that little bit older and who can see and understand why this is important to you and why you've done it. And you can see how your choices have built them and developed them into the people that they are. And I think that's really important to learn. I think it's really important for my daughter to learn and that poor little thing she has heard her whole life, a man is not a plan. And my son has heard his whole life, you do not ever in any way physically or um, psychologically or emotionally push anyone around. Yeah. Um, I, I have to temper that for both of them. Yes. A bit. But they know that what's expected of them is just to try their hardest at whatever it is. 
But one thing I think that has also happened to me is I am away from them less now than I was when they were really small. Mm. At one stage, I thought your kids going to school was the get out of jail card, Mm. that, you know, really then you could get back to your career and chug along. And I realised that, in fact, once it's once they hit those, their institutionalised years, (laughs) that they need you more than just a safe, caring place. And I wouldn't say I've scaled back, but I have structured my work so that I can go to school reading mornings and I can be the least reliable class rep. Yeah. <laughs> it's really embarrassing when the other parents start emailing you about things you have to tell everyone. Um, and then they've got a pretty good read on what they're getting. But to be actively involved, to be able to go to little assemblies. But my kids also know there's things that I can't go to. And I haven't been, I've tried really hard not to be tortured about that or to be overly apologetic about it. Because, you know, sometimes schools, and it's more at kindy that we had this seven seconds notice of things. It's almost a full-time job going to everything that the schools have on. I have three kids, they're all at school. And if I went to every single thing and then got involved in all the other things that I could get involved with, I don't think I'd have time to work. No, if you want to be on top of it. And I, and I think I really noticed that when my, um, when my second child went to school. Same school, totally familiar, but still I was a meerkat in the playground going, does anyone <laughs> know what's going on? And I think it helps to have girls because they can inherently pay slightly more attention yes. than boys can. I also think I'm rapidly getting to that stage where they're going to be heartbreakingly independent in the mm. blink of an eye. And I'm not ready for that. I don't want to sacrifice these years. Yeah. But I would like to nail my career opportunities during these years. Mm-hmm. And there's the plate spinning and the juggle. That's right. And all those boundaries and everything else. So tell us, Anne-Marie, do you have a mantra? How do you live your life? Fast. Um <laughs> <laughs> I have always had some little self-soothing habits before I realised that's what they were. And I can remember, I must have been at university because I can remember I could drive at this stage. And I made myself a little list of five very simple, fabulous things that I would call on whenever I needed just to, it was almost a form of meditation. And they were things like, getting into the car when someone else has filled it up with petrol and your tank is totally full, driving along when a song, and this is before you could really control your music as well as we can now, but when you're driving along and a song that you love randomly comes on the radio and you can sing it to your heart's content, Mm -hmm. getting into clean sheets after you've had a shower, lying in my bed and hearing my family laughing in another room, And just those little moments where you catch yourself and you realise your life and the scheme of life on this planet is so bloody fantastic. And I don't know what made me put that together, but whenever the chips are down, whenever I haven't slept well enough, I I, I have been able to stop myself and say, just look around at what there actually is. Stop worrying. You don't have to go so fast. And it can be easy to fall into the trap of looking for the big things that make life interesting or exciting. And when we don't meet those goals or those expectations, then feeling down. But what I love about that is all those things that you mentioned are just day-to-day, little, ordinary parts of living. You could find them every single day if you looked for them. 
One piece of advice that you would give to women who are managing their career and their family, what would that be? It's advice that I I wouldn't have been able to comprehend. You don't have to be at all now. Your career is a long one. It's it's okay to build to something. I think I've always been in a hurry. And I can remember going to see a doctor when I was at university and I was I had a persistent sore throat that I just couldn't shake. And she asked me what I did and I explained it all to her. And she said, Anne-Marie, you know, 85% is still an A. <laughs> and I didn't understand what she meant. And I can remember sitting there and I think about it now thinking, she's trying to tell me something here. <laughs> and now I think she was inviting me just to slow down. Yeah. You have to be everything you're going to be by Thursday. Yes. That resonates deeply with me. I've often been told I'm in a bit of a hurry. And then I always think whatever it is that you're in a hurry for, it's like, well, once you've got it, there's always got to be something else. Yeah. So why necessarily be in a hurry to have that one thing? I think that's the real challenge of being interested in this mortal existence because there's so much. Yes. And sometimes I subscribe to all sorts of strange blogs and one of them is a science blog and I, I don't understand three quarters of it and I find myself thinking there's so much I'm never going to know I'm, there's never going to be enough time to do most things. things yeah 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 I know what you mean being lifelong learners and being deeply curious I think can be challenging yeah but it's, it's the only way to live isn't it to be curious yeah well thank you so much this has been such an enjoyable conversation thank you And thank you for your honesty, not just in the speech and the acceptance speech, but during this interview. And the word that keeps coming up that you've you've mentioned a couple of times is sacrifice. And there were times during what you just your our conversation here where Joe and I both had tears in our eyes. (laughs) See, I didn't know if that was obvious. (laughs) (laughs) I know you well enough, and you probably know the same of me. But it's just your sheer honesty, and you're not hiding it. Maybe you have, but you're not anymore. And you're just saying this isn't always easy. It doesn't always have to be easy. And that actually that's okay too. So thank you. Pleasure. Don't be afraid of it, I think, is what I've learned in more recent years. We are all capable of coming out the other side. Yeah. A lot of women need to hear that. So I'm really glad that we have had this opportunity to share it with them. Thank you for inviting me, ladies. That was lovely. Thank you. What an absolutely fantastic and inspirational lady we just listened to. And I'm sure it's got lots of you thinking about working and being a working mother and what that means to you and the sacrifices that you make for your family and for your career and for yourself. We would love to know what those things are for you. And we are quite excited to be putting together an episode that includes the voices of all of our listeners. So what we would love you to do is to record a short audio snippet, 30 to 60 seconds, and tell us what being a working mum means to you. Send it to us by email, on Facebook Messenger, however you like to get it to us, because we would love to include it in our upcoming episode. And don't forget to check the show notes for the link to Anne-Marie's full acceptance speech because it really is an incredible thing to listen to. And again, thanks to Law CPD for sponsoring the episode. You can find out more about their great courses at lawcpd.com.au. Check out our website, thejuggle.com.au for links to our Instagram and Facebook and to find the great link to our Facebook community if you're not already in there. See you next time, everyone. Happy juggling. Happy juggling.